Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Mark and Pastor Zach, and we are here with episode one of Reformed Podmatics, beginning a new venture here, um, setting out to edify and equip the church with um, some of the thoughts and learnings and um, hopefully wisdom that we've gathered about uh, God, about his glory, about the gospel, Mm -hmm. about church, and maybe a little bit more specifically about Reformed Theology. And so uh, it's an exciting time. The date is August 6, 2020, and there's a lot happening in the world right now. And um, Pastor Zach and I thought, well, um, perhaps we can contribute to all of the cacophony of voices that is out there in the podcasting world by um, lending a little bit of sanity, hopefully, and uh, biblical wisdom regarding some of the things that are happening in our world from a reform perspective. Yeah, so why don't we start, Mark, with a, a, some self-introductions here um, so people can get to know us a little bit. Cool, yeah. So my name is Mark Van Dyke, and I am the pastor here at Almond Valley Christian Reform Church. And Almond been, Valley. Almond it's, Valley. It's weird to hear that. Yes, so. I know. It's I had to stop before I said Almond Valley because we say Almond Valley in the town of Ripon, California, which is surrounded by Almond Farms, Almond Orchards. <laughs> I think both of us are still getting used to that. <laughs> and um, yes, we are. Uh, and hoping that people outside of Ripon will be listening. I think that we will be saying Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church when we talk about it here on the podcast. And so, yeah, I've been here about almost, well, four and a half years or so, Um, and before that I was a pastor in Sumas, Washington, which is right on the Canadian border, which is closed right now because of COVID, Um, but uh, I was pastor there for four years, and I attended seminary at Calvin Theological Seminary, which is the denominational seminary of the Christian Reformed Church, and um, even before that I worked in um, web marketing with Logos Bible Software, and that was in Bellingham, Washington. So um, I was born and raised in the Chicago area, and but kind of consider myself more and more a Pacific Northwesterner, having gone to Trinity Western University in Vancouver for undergrad, worked at Logos Bible Software in Washington, been a pastor in Washington, and my wife is also from British Columbia. So um, that's a little bit of my context, and I was born and raised in the Christian Reformed Church, albeit a very different kind of Christian Reformed Church. That was a church plant, um, and so Almond Valley is a established church, which is uh, just a little bit more than 40 years old, and it has definitely the markings of a more traditional Christian Reformed Church uh, mm-hmm. building. Um, we Our church has about uh, probably about 275 members. Um, And that is not really the context I grew up in, which was a little church plant of about seven or eight families that grew into um, a church that is still exists in Plainfield, Illinois. Um, At that time, it was in Naperville where I grew up, but uh, has moved. And um, that has, we were just talking the other day, has really formed my view of church um, in that we never had a building. Um, We we were... um, in some ways, a little bit like the early church, meeting in each other's houses, um, youth group, the question was always, whose house is youth group going to be at this week, right? And so those kinds of things were a part of my church upbringing, and so um, that probably leads me a little bit more towards um, uh, being a little bit looser on institutions, maybe, um, and on some of the, the forms and formulas and methods that are tried and true in the historic or in the uh, traditional American church now. Um, yeah. Things were a little bit looser in our the church plant that I was raised in. So um, my church plant really wasn't uh, 
promoting Reformed theology very much. We were catechized, but um, you would very rarely have heard anything that was distinctly Reformed from the pulpit. And so um, I have been learning uh, what I love about the Reformed faith and Reformed theology more later in life. And actually that was some of, some of that happened at Calvin Seminary, but uh, a lot of it also happened when I was a pastor and I discovered Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon and yeah. Jonathan Edwards. And when I actually sat down and read John Calvin and um, Herman Bovink and Louis Burkhoff and some of those voices. So even though I was born and raised in the Christian Reformed Church, um, was more uh, homogeneously evangelical, I would say. Yeah. And then became more passionate about reform theology when I was a past when I became a pastor. Yeah, so that's really interesting to hear. I'd, I've heard your story many times, and still, that some of that is new to me. Um, that there was sort of an awakening of reformed theology for you. For for me, my story is somewhat similar but very different. So I didn't grow up in the reformed tradition. Did grow up in a Christian house. Um, it was a evangelical Baptist church that we attended for most of my life. And then when I was in high school, I started going to what was already a formerly United Methodist church. So it had left the Methodist denomination, but for all intents and purposes, still followed Wesleyan theology. Um, our pastor did go to Princeton, so he was quite familiar with Presbyterian and Calvinistic theology and so he was interesting to talk to and is a very well-informed person and he's still sort of a mentor to me uh, but in college for me I was beginning to read um, many of the what we could call now the emergent church leaders Brian McLaren uh, Doug Paget, uh, Rob Bell of course would be another big name and it was through the insistence of a friend over and over again berating me, telling me that I needed to read a book by Mark Driscoll called Doctrine, What Every Christian Should Know. And I thought the name of that book just sounded so presumptuous and pompous. But I finally did it. I, I was beaten down. And so I, I finally accepted the challenge and was blown away at how doctrine for the first time, even though I had grown up in the church, was explained and, and how it all sort of fit together. Um, and I thought that that book, I think that sort of spurred me on to read a lot more. So as you'll notice with that, I'm sort of a product of the young, restless, and reformed movement of the uh, late 2000s and early 2010s. Um, and so it was during my time in college while attending this non-denominational but Methodist church um, going to Fresno State. The, the church is in Kingsburg, California, where I'm from. Uh, but I went to Fresno State for college, and it was during that time that I was put in positions of uh, so what you could call leadership, I guess, leading a residency program for college students. Uh, so leading guys my own age, also being a part of the youth groups there, um, preaching occasionally for our evening contemporary service that we had at the time. Um, and so at that time, I was sort of beginning to now drink from the, the fire hose of, I guess, young, restless, and reformed theology. So I was reading a lot of John Piper, uh, Matt Chandler, Acts 29 type of guys, uh, but also, I guess, John Frame, Wayne Grudem were big names for me at the time. And so when I decided that I was feeling a call towards seminary, um, I found a blog post from John Piper and the number two seminary that he mentioned was Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. And so that was it for me. I didn't want to be in the snow. I didn't want to be in my own state of California. I wanted to go out and experience the world. And so I packed up my bags and left for Orlando and got there. And right before I left, uh, a big revolution happened in my thinking. One of my friends became Eastern Orthodox. And so a lot of my time in seminary was spent looking at the early church and looking at the Catholicity of the Reformed tradition. Um, and so, yeah, seminary was a life-changing time. Um, at the time, I started attending uh, the Cathedral Church of St. Luke's, uh, which is an Episcopal or Anglican church. Um, it's one of the few what you could call, I guess, Orthodox Episcopal churches in the U.S. Uh, that's definitely a minority group. Um and so after seminary, I decided I wanted to move back to California. I missed home. 
And so I found this opportunity, this calling here at, at Almond Valley as the youth pastor, which is now my position. Um, although I do do a few other things, I do teach adult Sunday school and I preach occasionally here as well. Um, and so, yeah, that sort of brings you guys, you guys all up to speed on how I got here and what I'm about. Yeah. And, um, there are, we touched on things already that there will be entire episodes about later in our, um, podcast (laughs) schedule here. Um, several things like you mentioned, young, restless and reformed. And so that's not really, um, an active term anymore. It's sort of gone the way of missional. Um, and so in a later episode, we do plan to talk about what the positives and, um, drawbacks of the Young Restless and Reform movement have been. Um, yeah. I think even in our notes, it'll sort of say uh, using Mark Driscoll <laughs> as a parable in yeah. a lot of ways of um, some of the good things and some of the dangerous things about that movement. And mm-hmm. so um, I think so, we both have lots of opinions yeah. on that. And so that'll be, an yeah, that'll be a good episode. And um, maybe even in my own um, background as well, thinking about church planting and evangelism and ecclesiology and seeing the church growth movement, which is more what I come out of, um, yeah. as um, something that we can evaluate from a reform perspective and do so in hindsight a little bit at this point, because while it is still active and alive in church American church culture, I would say we have a little bit of perspective on that at this point. But right. um, for today's purposes, uh, we are talking about some of the dichotomies that good historic reformed theology will shatter and um, often in my own preaching i talk about a road in northwest washington where i moved here from uh, where i lived for a while and that road is called double ditch road <laughs> perfect it, name <laughs> it is and um if anybody listening maybe has been to northwest washington you would probably know double ditch road because it's a main thoroughfare there in uh near the town of linden And anyways, you could imagine what the road looks like. There is a very narrow road. It's a country road. And it has a deep, probably about an eight-foot ditch on uh, the left side and the right side of the road, no matter which way you're going, of course, because it's on both sides. And it's a very deep ditch because of the irrigation that they have for all of their dairy farms there so that they can grow corn and so forth. Um, There are these ditches that are essentially canals. And so... You're driving down Double Ditch Road, there's no shoulder, and it's on both sides. And I like to use that as an illustration of the dangers of many different things in the Christian life or of life in America yeah. today. It's almost like somebody invented the name of that road and they put the ditches there <laughs> just as a sermon illustration one day for some pastor to come along yeah. and use. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny that it took so long for me to use that in a sermon illustration. And the one time I used it explicitly in here in Ripon, there was a guy in our church a thousand miles away who was visiting our church who lived on Double Ditch Road in <laughs> Northwest Washington. And so um, anyways, the point, awesome. the point of the illustration is Um, the Lord has designed for us a straight and narrow path Hmm. and he equips us to be on the straight and narrow path. And often the way off that path is not just um, one direction off, but there would be two extremes that we want to avoid in following Christ. And so we're going to explore some of those extremes. Um, For example, the most obvious Hmm. one that springs to mind when reading the Bible or when living your Christian life is the the two ditches of being just about truth at the expense of love um, or being just about love at the expense of truth. And maybe mm-hmm. another way of putting, putting that is the law versus grace dichotomy. There's those who will fall off the straight and narrow path towards law-keeping and legalism, and there are those who will fall off the straight and narrow path towards um, cheap hmm. grace, um, where there is no cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, that it's just grace, let us go on sinning so that grace may abound, that obviously the Apostle Paul um, writes a lot about this type of thing. And so, um, again, the point of bringing that up is the Reformed uh, biblical historic Christian 
approach mm-hmm. to life and to salvation, to Christian living, is that uh, we're going to be on this straight and narrow path and we're going to try to shatter these dichotomies uh, at every right. chance that we get. Yeah, part of the, the whole interesting part of, uh, of this way of doing theology is, as Mark was saying, avoiding the ditches on both sides. And I, I think what we're going to try to do with all of these is show that there's so many dichotomies, there are so many double-ditch roads in our lives that we face. Um, and so we're going to knock out a bunch of different dichotomies here. So yeah, starting with, fire. with truth and grace. Well, of course there's the tendency in our hearts as human beings to, uh, to be sinful. <laughs> that's, that's reformed theology 101. and our sin will manifest itself in different ways and in different people. For some of us, some of us, this can be, uh, an overly rigid and, uh, dense or, or cold way of approaching people's sin. And so when we see other people in our life acting in ways which we think are out of step with the truth of the gospel, we will find ourselves wanting to uh, come down very hard on them, sort of like the uh, helicopter parent who is always there to correct the child and every which way that the the child errors, uh, we're going to make sure that they, they don't do that anymore. And so... We've, we've probably all seen this in different times in our lives. Uh, you can maybe even think of someone, maybe that someone is yourself, that you have the tendency uh, in your sin to want to correct every single problem and you want to do it quickly, you want to do it uh, promptly, and you may not always care so much about how you do that. The opposite tendency, which we can all think of, is the tendency towards love, uh, and, and this can be sinful in that it does not stand for the truth, that it tends towards affirmation of the person. We see a lot of this, I think, in gospel preaching or what goes as gospel preaching today, where we, we do not talk to anyone about their sin, about their faults, about what they have done wrong and where they stand before the Lord. Uh, we just want to tell them that God loves them. God cares about them. God has a plan for them. Um, and so... What you're doing is building them up, telling them you are enough. There's nothing wrong with you. God loves you just the way you are. Girls, stop apologizing. Right. And this, yeah, you see that a lot in that sort of stuff. Um, Yeah. And a lot of, not to be rude, I guess, but I think in in a lot of women's Mm -hmm. stuff, there is this tendency to be overly affirmational um, and not getting into, hey, you you do need to repent here. and there so, is a law. There is a law. And so <laughs> the trying to navigate between the two poles of, of truth and love is something that I think Reformed theology can do very good with. The Reformed tradition um, has the resources and the tools for this. Uh, yeah, I have found that when we walk this path between truth and love well, uh, people are really refreshed by that type of preaching. Um, yeah. So, in my seminary education, it was it was grace based preaching, which is good. I think that was a corrective of mm-hmm. our denominational history of being more law based preaching. Um, however, I always found that um, when it's just grace and grace and grace, and when you see the Bible as just wisdom literature and it's a mm-hmm. it's it's God's story of salvation, which it absolutely is. And when you dismiss the Ten Commandments and Psalm yeah. one hundred nineteen is what we're reading as a family in devotions right now, and you're seeing <laughs> the beauty of the law through it. Yep. And um, of course, Jesus came, and he didn't just love on people. He preached the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked very seriously about sin. And he said, "I have come." to serve and, and he, to, to give my life as a ransom. And for, he elevates sin too, right? He says, you've heard it said that right. you shall not commit adultery, but anyone who lusts after another woman commits adultery in his heart. Right, so, and so he intensifies that in some way. And mm-hmm. um, and I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Yeah. And so, um, and anyways, I, I found that people respond very well to Reformed preaching that walks this balance between truth and love, between uh, grace and law, 
because um, I'll often use the example of a doctor who is um, good with diagnosis because people come into the sanctuary mm-hmm. wanting to worship the living God. They want to be in his presence and often they will have something in their life that is blocking them from doing that like a person going to a doctor and saying what's wrong with me i feel rotten please give me the most precise diagnosis you can and when they're met with well god just loves you (laughs) and god forgives your sin and so let's pray a very general kind of prayer of repentance and expect that god will um will sort of figure things out you know Mm -hmm. fill in all the cracks of the the sort of ways that we don't know that we really sinned against him that leaves people feeling that they've received a kind of generic grace. Mm. And so um, part of the goal of the preacher and the goal of any Reformed theologian or the goal of the youth pastor is to get as precise as we can in some of our diagnoses and say, here's the sin we're going to think about, and let's let's look within our hearts and we will find we disobey all of the Ten Commandments every day in various (laughs) ways. And let's get precise in seeing how we have offended God so that we can take that specific sin to him, to Christ, and we will see in Christ how it is forgiven and how we're restored into something specific, right? And so um, when when it's just a kind of uh, grace, even peppered with some generic call to repentance, um, I've found that that could sometimes still leave people wondering, but what is really going on in my life? Like, what have I done against God? Yeah. And so um, hopefully the, the the preacher isn't just there to say, all of you have done this exact sin, you know, that I know about, but I, I think we need to speak uh, with God's word in a reformed way, in a biblical way, um, and get as precise as we can while also leaving some room for the Holy Spirit to convict of sin that will be particular so that people might come to the cross. Yeah, so. exactly. People need to know what, in what ways they've been erring or living out of accord with God's law against God's law so that they can begin to see how God transforms their hearts in that area. It yeah, gives them exactly. grace for sanctification. Yeah. Um, and so it very much is like a doctor you need to give a good diagnosis and then a good uh, treatment plan and prognosis yeah um and the good news is that there is a hopeful prognosis there is there is hope for for transformation that's very clear throughout throughout the new testament and i think it's in the belgic confession where it says when then when i do good it's not as though god is indebted to me it's that i am further thankful to god because he's changed my sinful heart yeah and he is now enabling me to say no to that particular sin that had conquered me in the past and now i can say no to it now i can live for christ and the more particular you get about those things the more particular you get about your thanksgiving to god for the grace he's given you, for the transformation he has brought, and for the uh, the, the Christ likeness that you sort of now see within yourself, and so we're, we've spent a lot of time on dichotomy one here. <laughs> we to, have many yeah, more to go here. Yeah, we're going to plow through a few others, but uh, there are many that reformed, good reformed theology will address. Uh, maybe another one is this dichotomy that a lot of reformed people struggle with, particularly that is between God's sovereignty versus personal Mm. responsibility. And um, I would say the truly Reformed person wants to hold to both biblical teachings (laughs) of the sovereignty of God. Certainly Reformed people who read a lot of Reformed theology would have no problem doing that, but also emphasizing the responsibility of the sinner to take responsibility for the wrongs we've done, the sin we've committed against God, and Mm -hmm. to seek his sovereign grace for us. Um, I think that obviously we know the ditch that Mm -hmm. most reformed people would fall into would be the ditch that considers only God's sovereignty and essentially absolves any person of any wrongdoing. This is particularly a a struggle of those, I would even say, in um, the the hyper-Calvinist camps. I, I think of some friends I know who have come out of the Netherlands Reformed 
denomination where um, God's sovereignty is seen as really the only agent and the only thing in the world, so much so that I'm just going to live like the Apostle Paul, breathing mm -hmm. out threats and slaughter and uh, <laughs> breathing out uh, violence and, uh, you know, whatever that is for me, whether it's sexual promiscuity or hatred or greed. Yeah. And I'm just going to sort of live that way until God wakes me up in his sovereignty, right? And it's taking no personal responsibility. So um, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an awesome sermon on hyper-Calvinism. And if anyone listening hmm. to this would go to mljtrust.org and type in hyper-Calvinism, the number one hit on that is a great sermon on how real biblical theology will correct um, our penchant towards falling in one of those ditches, yeah. whether it's just personal responsibility and that's all on you and you'll never save yourself or it's just it's all god's fault it's not even the devil made me do it it's almost god made me do yeah. it and he better save me when it's just god's sovereignty without personal responsibility yeah it's it sort of tends t towards fatalism um that there's no way of escaping anything and that you have no agency as a human being i think the best approach and the most reformed approach that i've found and read would be, I guess, called compatibilism, which somehow it may sound like it's a punt, <laughs> like you're not actually answering the question. And I guess here is where we can pull the mystery card. And so we don't know how exactly these two can be reconciled, but we do know that they can be and that they are, that God is totally sovereign, totally in control, totally in authority. He is Lord over all things. Whatever comes to pass comes to pass because God has, and this is, I guess, more controversy, either allowed it or ordained it, or both. Um, and at the same time, we still will have to give an account for ourselves before the Lord in judgment. Um, and we will not be able to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Um, we will have to say, here's what I did with what you gave me. And I know that I'm responsible for it. And so this doesn't get us out of the way of having to do anything in our Christian lives. The Christian life is a life of human effort and agency. There, um, there's a law, and it says in the Old Testament, and I have not hidden it in the heavens, right? I have yeah. made it available and knowable to you for, so because you can do these things, um, yeah. um, certainly that doesn't mean we can follow God's law perfectly, but that means God gives us a law that uh, we could understand and should give effort to obey. Yeah, I, I think I think of a couple different subjects from church history. So one would be Charles Finney, and we'll have another episode, I think, later on about revivals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Finney basically says, and he's a very Pelagian here, but he says that miracles are, are revivals are not miracles. They're something that that human beings can essentially cook up themselves. And he even says something so strange to me where he says, and this isn't a, a proper quote, but it's a paraphrase. Uh, he essentially says human beings before uh, they are converted have all of the propensities, all the abilities, all of the wherewithal, uh, the capacity, I guess, is the word I'm looking for to do what they need to do to follow God's law. The tabula rasa, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so he's very Pelagian. full of, <laughs> of enlightenment <laughs> thinking, yeah. Um, but they have all of, all of the right things within them. The only thing that's different is that now they're marshalling those capacities uh, to do something to follow God's law. And so there's not really any marked change mm. in the, the human being. Um it's all there within them already, and and that's not where we want to tend to go. We want to avoid that pull at the same time. So, um, yeah. So that's that's one thing that comes to mind, and and I forgot the other one. <laughs> well, and what what the question maybe is: What does regeneration do, right? And yeah. so the reformed view of being born again, being regenerate, that is an act of God. And it also mm -hmm. will produce obedient hearts um, as evidence of regeneration. Right. And so um, we are responsible 
for our sin before regeneration. Yeah. There's God makes a righteous judgment. Um, and even after we sin, we remain, um, I would say responsible for those sins. It's not as though, uh, you can just sort of blame it on God as the hyper hyper Calvinist would be, <laughs> uh, would be sort of theologically cornered into admitting. So, um, anyways, that's another one that we would want to avoid is this falling in the ditch of only God is sovereign. And I'm not even, I have no agency in my own life Mm -hmm. versus, um, I have complete agency and uh, I'm going to sort of manufacture the revival like the Finney, um, or the often the charismatic, um, Mm -hmm. sort of movement has communicated that, um, music and um, excitable preaching and yeah. sort of some kind of experience, mountaintop experience that you can go and find. Of could, course, theologically, they would they would put that all yeah. in the spirit and say this is all yeah. the spirit's work, but it, it does <laughs> but seem it like it's all very <laughs> humanly right. done. Human-centered, yeah. Um, and so what's another uh, dichotomy that you would want us to shatter with uh, biblical reform theology? Let's see here. So one of the big ones... Um, really in the Reformed tradition, so I guess we're speaking really in-house here, uh, there's three different, I guess, streams, you could say, within the Reformed tradition. And these three streams could sort of be said to be the pietistic stream, the transformationalist stream, and the doctrinalist stream. Uh, so what is the, the advantage or what's the good thing? What's the benefit of each of these? And then what's sort of the, the downfall or the, the, the uh, disadvantage of each of these? We might call it a trichotomy, yeah. if that makes, like uh, thinking of them as corners of a triangle, right? And um, I'm sure we could spend more time on this in another episode. Yeah, thinking this of could be its own episode Some of sure. the, obviously, the benefits of piety, of good doctrine, and of seeking revival or transformation. Um, but um, I, I've, I've heard it described as uh again a triangle and you want Mm -hmm. that triangle to be as much an equilateral triangle as possible right and there are those streams of uh either reformed church or evangelical churches um where one side of that say transformationalism will be um far and away the most important thing the the Mm -hmm. the foundation of the whole church is transformationalism and doctrine gets a very small um piece of the side of side of the triangle yeah some piece of the pie um and so we would want to reject that uh that trichotomy that says you have to pick one you're going to be an exciting place where change is happening as a congregation or even thinking of it more individualistically you're just going to be the doctrine person and that's sort of your thing or you're going to be the the gentle servant and that's more the piet, the mm-hmm. pietist mm-hmm. Um, and that's just going to be what you focus on. And so reformed theology, uh, biblical doctrines call people to reject picking one. Yeah. Um, and so uh, obviously... Um, I think one of the greatest examples in Reformed history would be that of Jonathan Edwards, where hmm. um, certainly no one could convi- could uh, accuse Edwards of being only transformationalist because he was such a great uh, systematician. Um, mm-hmm. No one could accuse him only of being a doctrinalist because he was very pietistic and no one could conv- could accuse him only of being pietistic because there was revival around him. Um, certainly in Northampton, and I would even say in other places where he went as well. So um, not as though he is the perfect example of the equilateral (laughs) triangle. Perhaps there's no one. Well, that would be Christ, of course, and any (laughs) teaching of Scripture. Um, And yet I I do think robust, reformed um, theology, preaching, um, piety, will uh, keep that triangle fairly equilateral mm-hmm. uh, and will will address some of the deficiencies of probably the American evangelical church. Yeah, because one of the big things, obviously, in the American world, 
I get American part of the world, the American culture or context uh, is a move, I think, towards the transformationalist side of this. Even within um, the reform with neo-Kyperianism. Exactly. Yeah. Neo-Kyperianism is something we see a lot in our context, but it's this idea of, it's. I guess you could call it the social gospel. Um, there may be some people who would not really appreciate that and that would perhaps be fair, but um, the the big part of the whole church existing, the whole point of everything is really just to go out and make your community a better place to yep. be. Um, to build God's kingdom. Building the That's kingdom a big, is yeah. a big theme, and it should be a big theme. <laughs> well, I don't know if we build it. I think that that would sure, be Sure, sure. God builds his kingdom. We we are proclaimers of the kingdom. Yeah. You know that's that would be a great episode a, later too. Is what yeah. verb do we put in front of the kingdom in terms of what a Christian does hmm. and a neo Kyperian, which is maybe for those who are listening are not yeah. super versed on these theological terms. Uh, <laughs> Abraham Kuyper was a great theologian who became prime minister of the Netherlands, and he um, he was very um, engaged in culture. Mm-hmm. in some wonderful ways, uh, particularly, this doesn't get very much attention from modern-day Neo-Kyperians, through uh, educational systems. And so really encouraging a Christian education system, actually, mm-hmm. in the Netherlands at the time. And uh, and so the Neo-Kyperian, as opposed to a typical historical Kyperian, would often take these uh, cultural engagement principles of yeah. Abraham Kuyper and... Um, kind of ramp them up on steroids, I would say, and um, often will turn Kuiper into a bit of a caricature. Mm-hmm. And so Abraham Kuiper had the famous quote, there is not a square inch of all creation over which Christ does not cry mine. And so um, often the Neo-Kyperian will put that on their banner and not study Abraham Kuiper all that much mm-hmm. um, and just say, well, since Christ calls everything his, we're going to find the gospel in Game of Thrones, <laughs> and we're going to, uh, you, you know, uh, yeah. find, uh, just go into every area of culture and say it's Christ, and so there's something to be yeah. automatically. So it's pure. Then all of a sudden, it purifies everything in the world. Yeah, and uh, that dichotomy that we would have to that would be an that, interesting that we would have to <laughs> recapture would be that Christ does call us in some cases to forsake the world. Yeah, and so even though everything he is sovereign over everything, he does say you are in the world, but you are not of it. And so, anyways, um, that's sort of the Kyperian forsaking the world dichotomy that we stumbled into mm. through this. Uh, Trichotomy, Before we move on say. to the next one, I'd, I'd like to ask you and hear what you say. Uh, which of the three do you find yourself tending towards the most? Hmm. Uh, well, I'm pretty much got it perfect. I think actually, no. <laughs> uh, I I would say doctrinalism, but not in the cold sense hmm. of hmm. thinking that everybody needs to study the institutes. Um, I think yeah. in the more general way of people just need to fix their thinking. Yeah. And I think that's a real struggle for a lot of reformed people. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the Kyperians um, would perhaps say, if we could just fix the thinking, then... If we could um, just educate people. Right. Yeah, illumination, enlightenment, all of those things, that can be where the doctrinalist leans. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so sometimes my frustration with a person would be thinking, they just don't know enough or they don't have the right facts. Instead of... um, if I were to capture that triangle a little bit better, I might think first, well, they need the spirit's transformation in their heart and their mind because they don't have the mind of Christ. According to first Corinthians two, they find the gospel foolishness or they find Christian theology boring or, Mm -hmm. you know, like they they need a transformation in order for that to be attractive to them, um, which will then lead to a pietistic way of, holy living right and so um i think i think if if i were to evaluate my triangle i'd say the the doctrine side would be a little bit too long although in my preaching i do often try to evaluate a sermon based on did i address holy living did i address the spirit's work in bringing transformation did i address in some way some uh doctrine or truth about god that 
is going to help people realize I need to live it God's way and I need to be transformed. Mm-hmm. Similar to this trichotomy, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but while we're on it, I think what what this trichotomy gets at is the ways of being reformed. Um, there's another yeah. trichotomy in the reformed world that I've heard that's been helpful, which is a way of doing reformed theology. Um, and this this is... I guess I've, the way I've heard it is the truly reformed, mm-hmm. the evangelical reformed, or sort of tongue-in-cheek being called the barely reformed. And that's a whole other episode I think we'll get to <laughs> later on too. And then the third one would be the Catholic reformed. And so each of these bears some similarities with one sure. another, but they all have distinguished ways of doing theology um, and so the evangelical reformed, you'll see them, these people will be reformed, but they'll sort of be evangelical first and they will wear that on their sleeve and they'll do a lot of reading of the broader evangelical world. They will read the big names. Um, and so they will be sort of a hybrid of those two. The mm. truly reformed will be much more doctrinalistic, doctrinalistic. Yep. They are, uh, very self-consciously within the reformed confessions and those loom large in their thinking and in their in their piety and in their behavior. Um, and so the, the third one, the Catholic Reformed, uh, is, I guess, really interested in historical theology and in the Catholicity of the Reformation um, and sort of the creeds, I guess you could say, church fathers. Ecumenical movement. Ecumenical sort of stuff. And you see these all in the Reformed world, especially in the conservative reformed world, I've, I, I see these very clearly um, sort of delineated. So I guess quick representatives, I'd say, of the evangelical reformed world. You'd have Acts 29, uh, maybe Tim Keller would be there. Uh, the truly reformed world, you'd have, I could think of different theologians like R. Scott Clark um, and other OPC. Daryl Hart, yeah, William, Bill Godfrey or Rob Godfrey. Uh, Bob Godfrey. Um, and then the Catholic Reformed, you'd have, I guess, Michael Allen, um, Todd Billings from the RCA, Peter Lightheart, for sure. Um, and so you see those represented pretty well. Um, and that's part of the interesting thing about our landscape is we live in a hyper-connected world yeah. where you can pick your hero so easily. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I hope this podcast will do is not be hagiographical towards some leader or yeah, some person. Um, but we like, I could use Edwards knowing that the man had faults and the man, uh, had some struggles and of course had some sin that certainly we see, um, now very clearly in his life. Um, did he have slaves writing. or was he, he a racist? He, he, <laughs> yeah. And so um, there's some of those things and we're not going to hagiographize all of a sudden everything that somebody has done because right. our goal is to be biblical. And mm-hmm. again, in that Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon, um, it's so easy. He, he mentions it's so easy to find your hero and go that direction. And eventually you will lose some teaching of scripture if you follow a fallible, um, broken person, um, just yeah. at just at the exclusion of any other voice, and so we want to bring a lot of voices into this um, these conversations, and uh, some of them will be very trusted, reformed voices, and at times we could even learn from some voices who are understanding something very well that will fill mm. out our triangle a little bit better. Yeah, um, totally. Who will understand some part of transformation that we need to understand. And maybe they're just a transformationalist, and so that's about all we can learn from them. But we can see that God is doing something, say, through a charismatic movement that could be good and mm. could teach us uh, what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like, for example, or some doctrine that could be helpful. So um, that that's something that we do want to do in this, is we don't want to say we are the disciples of X, Y, and Z, <laughs> and so yeah. we're just going to teach you what they said. Um, we hopefully are first disciples of Jesus Christ and and of the Scriptures and preachers of the Scriptures, and at mm-hmm. times that will call us to affirm 
John Calvin and Augustine and Edwards, and at times that will maybe even call us to say, let's wrestle with what Calvin mm. said here mm -hmm. according to biblical teaching. And so um, maybe um, one that maybe leads into maybe my last uh, dichotomy that I want to bring up is the dichotomy between declarative ministry, declarative preaching yeah. versus humility. Um, I have seen, and this is this was again in my seminary education a little bit, there was a serious aversion towards the declarative in pastoral care education mm -hmm. and in preaching education. There was very much a, an emphasis on being available, on being... A faithful presence. Yeah, sort of the, the non-anxious presence, which yeah, is good, yeah. right? It's necessary. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And being humble in uh, support of a person or of a church. Um, and I, there was a pushback against the declarative sort of stand and deliver, you know, <laughs> say, speak the word of God. And so I would say good yeah. biblical reformed preaching, good biblical reformed ministry will be declarative in many cases and saying, um, God calls this sin and we must repent, but also <laughs> doing that humbly saying, and I also am a sinner that God has saved, um, you know, just like the Apostle Paul, I'm I'm the the chief of all sinners, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm a I'm a worm. I'm a servant. I'm a slave to Christ. And uh, um, and so, hopefully, um, the reformed biblical ministry, whether that's a youth ministry in your case or more of a preaching ministry in mine, mm. is declarative yet humble. This sort of goes back to the truth love dichotomy, yep. but it applies particularly to how we preach and counsel others. And so while some of you may not be preachers, maybe you're not getting up in, in the pulpit and, and delivering the word to people, uh, we're all called to, to preach the gospel to people, whether it's ourselves or our friends, our spouses, our kids, uh, and so on, our family members. And so we, we all have to be looking for ways to stand in the gap and proclaim something regardless of what will come to us. Um, and there's a way of doing this. We, we do want to be humble. We want to be understanding. Uh, we want to uh, be encouraging and, and helpful, caring to people. We're not trying to just step on people's toes for the sake of doing so. We're trying to proclaim something that is true. We are trying to bring good news to people who need it. And this is going to require, of course, some, some difficulty for us you, you see all throughout the bible you can see the prophets being being ridiculed hated because of what they did uh, you see the apostles especially in the book of acts standing up and saying something or you see stephen not an apostle but he stands up and is killed for it uh, for preaching truth to people um, and so when i think about this declarative versus humble dichotomy i think of street preaching um, we've all seen the ones who are overly declarative and not humble at all. Um, and they sort of think of themselves as angels, um, that they are so much better than all these sinners. The modern prophet. Yeah, but there the are good sense. street preachers who do a good job of declaring the truth while acknowledging their own sin and their own failures and their own uh, moral flaws that they have um, and, and wearing those on their sleeve, so to speak. Um, and Reformed theology especially would be helpful for oh yeah. for this in that we subscribe to the doctrine of total depravity. Mm -hmm. And and so we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We have nothing. We bring nothing into salvation. We bring nothing into yeah. the kingdom of God of our own merit. And so we, of all types of preachers, should be humble um, even after regeneration recognizing I brought nothing in and I'm, I'm not the, mm -hmm. I'm not the modern day prophet that, uh, certainly we, we <laughs> yeah. are, or we have the spirit of Christ. Um, and so in some sense we are prophets, priests, and Kings. And yet, um, many in, I would say the modern, even in the modern reformed world can see certain people as a, a gifted prophet, that has the ability to declare things that maybe even are in addition to scripture, but man, they're just so prophetic and so trustworthy that I'm just going to go with, for example, John MacArthur reopening his church. And so mm -hmm. um, 
that that is he, he is maybe the ultimate example i would say at this point of one who is going off the double ditch road towards yeah. declarative without the humility to say and god has placed civil authorities over us right. who will um who will say things that i may disagree with but god calls me to obey yeah and they've essentially set themselves up as experts in the field of of uh epidemiology right they just said, know it, it, they it know. was supposed to be i listened to the sermon so i've heard him say at the beginning of all this we closed our church because it was supposed to be really really bad well it turns out it's not been that bad so they're telling us a lie and so we're going to reopen well i have a lot of issues with that yeah. um and, and i guess the reason i bring up him up is he is he is parabolic in if if you hmm. preach declaratively and not humbly for 40, 50 years, hmm. then you're going to find yourself in this place where you would be incapable of humbling yourself before a civil authority or um, so forth. It gets harder and harder. Yeah, yeah, maybe incapable is too strong a word, but um, good Reformed theology, I would say, and Edwards would agree, will have an element of humble, contrite emotion involved mm -hmm. which i i think at times and maybe we need to wrap up is um is saying um in prayer in church in my preaching at times will be very moved at my own sinfulness and at my own need for grace and i yeah. think a reformed minister should show some of those things should show that humility yeah. in the present in a in the counseling room um in a sermon in prayer in a, an elders meeting and just saying, look, guys, we have got to fall on our face here. Mm -hmm. And then at other times being able to say, that person can't serve because they are living an openly shameful, sinful lifestyle. And so yeah. it, it's that, it, again, it's walking in that balance between the declarative and the, uh, the human. Yeah, problem. knowing when to pick your battles and when exactly. to stand up and when to take a seat. <laughs> right, when, when the Bible says it based on, you know, even something like John Calvin said, we will say everything the Bible says and nothing more. And um, I think that's a, a good corrective for uh, a lot of the places where this goes really wrong yeah. into the ditch. I would agree. Well, thank you guys for listening to this first episode, the maiden voyage, so to speak, of Reformed Podmatics. We hope that you guys find it really helpful and that you'll continue listening in the future. So please go ahead and subscribe or follow whatever you need to do in order to keep up with what we release in the weeks to come. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys.